0: Hello and welcome to Home to Her, the podcast that's dedicated to reclaiming the lost and stolen wisdom of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Liz Kelly, and on each episode, we explore her stories and myths, her spiritual principles, and most importantly, what this wisdom has to offer us right now. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. I am Liz joining you as usual. Can I speak today? Usual from central Virginia and the unceded lands of the Monica nation. And I'm so glad that you are with us today. And this is going to be a super special conversation. But before we jump in, I want to remind you that my book, Home to Her, Walking the Transformative Path of the Sacred Feminine is now available wherever you buy your books. Yay! Um, This book is my love's letter of sorts to the sacred feminine. It includes all kinds of historical research, plus my personal experiences walking this path, as well as a lot of insights I've gleaned from um, guests that have joined me on the show. And I've been encouraging people to purchase it directly from my publisher, Womancraft Publishing, because it's an amazing woman-owned business or from your local bookstore. But I would also be really grateful for your Amazon reviews. Um, if you liked the book, would you please consider leaving a review of it with Amazon or with Goodreads? Um, that would be so helpful. Just like with the podcast, reviews help other people find this kind of information. And one of the main reasons I wrote the book was because when I started researching the sacred feminine, I felt like I was kind of starting from scratch and I, I it was hard for me to find information. So I think any way we can make this easier and more accessible is a good thing. So as one of my mentors says, if it would be in your joy... I would love your support in getting the word out about this book and this work. And now let's get on to our show, shall we? So this conversation has been in the works for a long time now. I'm so excited that it's finally happening. And I'm just going to jump right in and introduce you to our guest today because I have a feeling actually I was putting my questions together and the list was getting longer and longer. So we'll see what we can (laughs) we'll see what we can get to. Sophie Strand is a writer based in the Hudson Valley who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology, but it would probably be more authentic to call her a neo-troubadour animist with a propensity to spend yarns that inevitably turn into love stories. Give her a salamander and a stone and she'll write you a love story. Sophie was raised by house cats, puffballs, possums, raccoons, and an opinionated crippled goose. In every neighborhood she's ever lived in, she's been known as the walker. She believes strongly that all thinking happens interstitially between beings, ideas, differences, mythical gradients. Her first book of essays, The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine, is newly released from Inner Traditions, and her eco-feminist historical fiction reimagining of the Gospels, The Madonna Secret, will also be published by Inner Traditions in 2023. She is joining us today from her home in the Hudson Valley, uh, Sophie Welcome. It's so good to have you here. Liz, it's so amazing to be here, especially because
1: we've been in the same kind of spiritual, ecological community for such a long
0: time. And I've loved and listened to this podcast. So I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. And so here's a couple of little backstory pieces for people who are listening. So Sophie's parents, uh, Clark Strand and Perdita Finn, were my very first guest on this show. And um, if you've heard me, you know, wax on about my love of the Divine Feminine Rosary, I credit her, um, her parents with that, uh, which I talk about in that first episode. And then also, um, for if any of you joined us for Revelry last fall, Sophie was part of that as well. She brought some of her poetry to that event. So um, yeah, like I said, I feel like this conversation has been in the works for a while. So I'm so glad it's happening. And um, usually where I start, Sophie, is getting a little bit of a sense of people's spiritual background. Um, I (laughs) just find it right. I know I find it interesting. Well, everybody's got a good story to tell. And I especially find it interesting um, when people start in one place and end up somewhere else. So I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I mean, I oftentimes say that I grew up in a spiritual compost heap, that my parents <laughs> write a lot about the history of religion and spirituality, and they're also really interested in creating non-hierarchical interfaith groups that can pray together despite their different backgrounds. And so, you know, my dad is an ex-Buddhist monk. My mom, you know, had converted to Catholicism, left it became pretty much a pagan, uh, wild, uh, magical woman. You know, half of my family are Jewish. So I was I was raised around Theravadan Buddhist monks and rabbis and nuns and theologians and philosophers and eco-anarchists all talking together at the dinner table and sharing food. And what was really um, prized above all was the ability to speak across differences and to not hold up one faith o- over the other, but to say that they were all... Equally important, they were different doorways into the same experience of an ecstatic divine. Um, mm. and so, yeah, I was definitely shown that spirituality was had a root system that pre- it was primarily place based, it was your relationship with the natural world, with your community, and that of course, you know, there could be different words and gods and goddesses attached to that, but it had to really stitch you intimately into the beings that constituted your environment. And so, yeah, I was raised on uh, in, um. The shadow of Overlook Mountain in the Hudson Valley. We rehabilitated possums and skunks and, and and crippled swans. We had cats and dogs. I spent met much of my time outside with mushrooms and lichen and worms and grubs. And my parents were very animistic in that they 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 wanted to share with me that everything was alive, but it was alive mm-hmm. differently than me, and that it was that difference that would keep me asking questions and dialoguing with a world that I believed could answer me. That I wasn't speaking at the world i was speaking to it beckoning it to respond and so i would say my spiritual background is animistic but also with a composting of many other different traditions be they jewish be they um um, tibetan buddhist zen buddhism christianity catholicism all of these different things intermingling in me and in and sparking in me a curiosity about how these religions have become the tool of ecocide and capitalism and racism what were the root systems how were they originally created how have they been co-opted by these problematic violent regimes and so you know in college this was something I really studied in an academic sense but I've also done it outside of academia in my own life yeah mm-hmm. so that's I the spark notes of it
0: hmm well and it sounds like um you know, rather it's like a lot of times I talk to people and it seems like they start in one place and then there's sort of this pivot. And I think those are people who are not uh, raised necessarily in this kind of compost heap that you describe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it sounds like what you're describing, like um w- it, where you started has become uh, more and more you, I suppose, as you've um you know, matured. I mean, does that feel true? It doesn't sound like you've um you know would well, I would, a I would point. say
1: there are pivot I, I would say there are pivot points for sure. Um, I mean, I think for me, I, I didn't think about spirituality or religion very much when I was, you know, I would say from like early, early adolescence to the point when I, when I was 16, I felt dramatically violently ill with a mysterious ailment that took about eight years to get a correct diagnosis because it was so rare. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that I, I was very I, I was very academic and interested in in philosophy, but that i was I was reintroduced to an interest in in mysticism and spirituality through this grappling with illness. Um, and mm. so and and yes, my parents definitely gave me a lot of background that was helpful,
0: but I had to find it again myself. yeah, that makes sense. Well, and the other question that I ask people um you know, kind of right out of the gate, when when I do these interviews, is about um, their understanding of the sacred feminine, and I'm I'm excited to hear what you have to say about this. And I've I've been reframing that question of late to you know the sacred feminine. First of all, is language I use, so uh, please feel free to use any language that makes more sense to you. But I'm I'm wondering um, how you relate to this com this concept, and also because I know you've written about it. Um, what you might see as the limitations of that lens as well. Thank you for asking that. So I always say that I
1: began, I would say my own personal spiritual inquiry as apart from my parents' background and the way that the the, the information that they gave me was that I became obsessed with how these feminine divinities had been suppressed and co-opted, turned into monsters inside of empire's rewrites of older pantheistic, environmentally conscious stories. I read The Chalice and the Blade by Rhianne Eisler, Anne Baring's work with the myth of the goddess. I was obsessed with these goddess images, and especially with how Mary Magdalene had seemed to be a key part of the tradition, the original um, Yeshua, Jesus tradition, who gets ridden out and demonized. And so, uh, you know, and my novel is definitely trying to resurrect all of the women who are part of that, the second temple period, Palestine, and part of the, the Jewish culture of the time period that get um, excise from the story of Jesus, we just uphold his twelve apostles and not all the other beings who were making the food who were also keeping this all going. You know, yeah. we know in Luke that the women in financially, wealthy women financially funded the ministry. So I was very interested in how the feminine had been denigrated spiritually and historically, and how that had led to certain kinds of culture cultural limitations today. I think for me, my problem, this, this understanding has developed over time, which is, I think that when we use terms like divine feminine and sacred masculine, and my book has that, that in its title, we can become unfortunately limited to a a value dualism that doesn't bear much um, reality in the rest of the entangled biological world. And it kind of locks us into an anthropocentric divine. And the truth yes. is that I think the divine feminine is leaky, that it's, it, it's, it's the earth, it's the matrix, it's the soil. It's the place where one rhizome, one root system leaks into another root system. It's trees that are connected by mycorrhizal fungi below the soil, where it's hard to tell where one gender ends and another begins, where one self ends and another begins. So I would say that, you know if 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 eurocentric capitalism rests on all of these binaries that say one thing is is normative and one thing is deviant and the deviant thing is usually anything other than a white male the the opposite of that is not going to be to rearticulate a binary and say so there's a divine feminine and the sacred masculine it's it, it for me, the opposite is actually saying that gender is complex, it's multivalent, it's always evolving, identity should be lunating, it should not be static, you know, if anything is static, it's dead, you know, identity should never be static, divinity should never be static, so while I have really benefited from an inquiry into the divine feminine and understanding my own ways in which I identify as feminine, and, and understanding sociohistorically how sexism has developed alongside religion I feel like that's absolutely key it's not a term that's necessarily big enough for me these days and I think sometimes it can lock us into a kind of human-centric narrative so I always I always say you know yes there are a lot of goddess figurines but actually the most predominant motif artistically in cave paintings and early art are polyphonic mesh works of beings. And then the humans barely register. They're stick figures. You know Obviously Barbara Ehrenreich writes that obviously these were skilled artisans who could draw complex figures and they were drawing very detailed textures, bisons and oryx and lions, and the humans were always just stick figures. That the most important thing was not a hero or a human, but a map of relationships and relationality. So how can we think of divinity as maps of relationships, forests of mycorrhizal fungi and trees and orchids and many different beings, rather than as one fixed identity?
0: Mm -hmm. And I want to read, actually. Um, These are your words, and I liked them so much that I quoted you in my book. So I'm pulling up my book, but it's the same (laughs) as as what's in your book. Uh, This just happens to be closest to me. divine feminine just isn't big enough for all the relationships holding and constituting me these days she thins my language into a one-to-one relationship even if she includes saints and mother earth and all women it's easy to slip into monic language one mother one relationship one sacred gender expression one temporality one thinking animal one species i'm not throwing her out i'm throwing her in melting her down, mixing her into the messier polytemporal animacy of everything I touch, change and become. I love that so much. And I also, I know the first time I read it, I was like, no, no. Um, it it was really, it was, it was sort of like this childlike response of wanting to hold on to this idea of the sacred feminine, which had been so healing to me just to have the counterpoint to the, to the masculine kind of monotheistic, um, male tradition that I was given. Um, And I wonder if you've, yes, you look like you want to say something. I wonder if you've encountered that perspective from others as well.
1: Well, I would say the divine, I work by process of addition, never negation. I never throw anything out because that's, you know, that's the the logic of the oppressor is that we, we work by antibiotic. We kill off the things we don't enjoy. We throw them out but the truth is there's no throwaway culture you're just you're just throwing your poison onto some offloading it onto some other community the more generous complicated thing is to take responsibility for everything and so for me divine feminine is a portal it's a doorway it's not a destination it's the first step So i what love I, that and what i think the divine feminine is the first step out of monotheistic um eurocentric um paradigms and so it, it, you can't skip that step you have to say the feminine has been degraded and the feminine is conflated with nature has been a really huge aspect of these mediterranean religions that have then become a key part of colonialism so i think the divine feminine for me was if i hadn't gone through the portal of the divine feminine i wouldn't be who i am today yes. it is a sacred doorway
0: Yes, I love that you describe it that way as a portal or a doorway. And I think um I feel like my experience has been similar too. And and so while I said, you know, that first reaction was like, no, I want to hold on to this. Um, which by the way, if you are as a listener are having that reaction, hold on, maybe you yeah. need it. Like it's I, I think that the difference is right when we try to make that dogma and put it on somebody else, then you know, now we've got the reverse of what we have at this moment, and that is not helpful. Um no. But when I really sat with what you wrote, Sophie, and, and so I want to tell you this little nugget and tell my listeners this too. I had a, one of my first teachers of divine feminine kind of wisdom um, told me that one of the greatest gifts that people can give you is to make you uncomfortable, uh, to, you know, to have an opportunity to really think and to be challenged in that way. So I, I appreciate being challenged in that way. And I took, uh, I took that thought and then I thought about my own experience, which has become more and more over time, nature-based and how, um, you know, one of my own most important practices is just going in the woods behind my house and sitting on a bench out there, preferably at dusk and just listening and watching and waiting to see what happens. And it's very divine. It is so divine. And, uh, I really questioned for myself. I'm like, am I calling this the goddess right now? Well, I I can, but yeah. I, I it, it, sure. And it's so much, it's so much larger. Um, so I feel like I understand what you're saying, you know, very much so with the doorway and the the entryway into seeing things differently.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. I, I've learned most from the things that I've, that have triggered me the most, yeah. you know, and I think a lot. So my area of study and the thing I've written most about is Jesus as a Jewish Galilean storyteller in a very particular time when Jewish people have been oppressed by the Roman empire and are experiencing radical acts of violence against them and poverty and illness. And the, I've, I've been very interested in how we've kind of neutered um, Jesus' language by translating it into the language of the oppressor, uprooting it from the very specific ecology he was responding to with all of these nature-based parables. So We lose the radical anti-imperial anarchic language when we put it through this game of telephone. And What I've been very interested about Jesus' parables is that actually when you put them back in Aramaic, put them back into a very particular social anthropological setting, they were designed to make people really angry to to make peasants really angry when he says the kingdom of god is like a mustard seed he's saying this is a weed that will destroy your crop so that you cannot feed your family and you cannot pay your taxes so the kingdom of god it's not at a distance it's not somewhere else it's here and it's this thing that will destroy your livelihood and be absolutely complicated so that's going to make people angry And, you know, John Dominic Crossan, who writes a lot about the anthropological and theological basis of Jesus and the historical Jesus as a Mediterranean peasant says, you know, if his, if his teachings had just been blithely accepted, they never would have been remembered that they were designed to create interruption because people would disagree with him. Mm -hmm. And I love that, which is how do we, how can we think about pedagogy as being about creating enough tension that a conversation blooms so that it's not a monologue so that it's a dialogue between people like we're massaging and prickling these things
0: together Mm, oh my gosh and even as you say that i'm like wow and what interesting territory to be entering into right now at this particular moment in time where i feel like uh our our um cultural dialogue is is so deeply rooted in opposites right i mean what is what is that experience like for you even advocating that sort of uh, a middle ground feels too simple but like you know the the all-inclusivity that you're talking about
1: i'm not i'm not interested in middle grounds as being some kind of um, homogenizing universalism where everyone's making compromises and in some way self-betraying i'm interested in ecotones which are places where one ecosystem dramatically um, uh, in um interfaces with another and changes into another, where like the grassland immediately becomes the forest. and they actually usually represent this this fertile boundary whereby there's more biodiversity, like more diversity of fish and birds. Ecotone comes from the Greek words eco for household, oikos and tonos for tension. So it's a place where tensions are held and because they're not dissolved, they're held. And the the paradox is is allowed to create friction, generative friction. There's more biodiversity, more happens. And so I'm interested, I'm very interested in, in coming into conversation with people who help, who, who, I, I risk changing my own mind, who, who risk changing me, that if yeah. I only ever talk to people who think like me, I'll never evolve. I'll never change my thinking. And so, you know, I don't want to come into conversation with someone. Well, but here's the thing that's also interesting, which is if you cut, someone said this to me recently, and I forget who, who said, when you're having a conversation with someone you disagree with, you have to ask, what would it take to change your mind? And if they don't have any answer to that and there's nothing, then it's not worth having a conversation. Then it's just two people monologuing. But if you're, if you're conversing with someone who's also willing to play with you, then something very interesting can happen there. Mm-hmm. How, how are you,
0: how are you experiencing this in your own life? Um, do you mean in terms of like the sacred feminine, that conversation yeah. around that? Well, you know- especially,
1: especially given that you, you come from a pretty, a pretty, um, I mean, I, you come from a religious background that perhaps would not accept that.
0: Yes, um, right. Well, I, I mean, I could answer that in multiple ways. I think, and this journey has been like multi-multi year for me at this point, right? So, I think initially. Um, uh, Well, I mean, I can think of it like an outward expression, like trying to interact with people sort of explaining what this is and what I'm doing and running into the opposition and how I manage that personally is very challenging for me because I come out of that sort of either or environment. Um, I find that I don't even know how to answer this. I was going to say, like, I started to say, like, people have gotten worn down (laughs) perhaps by, uh, by what I talk about and what I do, or just the, um, the, the or that it's often met with opposition and then opposition isn't necessarily a no. I think it's protection of ego and position. And uh, just because, yeah. just because there's a, a no initially doesn't mean that it's going to not be a seed that sprouts in some other way. And it's something that I kind of have to let go of and not really hold myself and just, just be with it. Um, In terms of what this specific kind of conversation about where the divine feminine is and um you know the evolution of it i have found for myself just as a reflection of even when i started this podcast and to now and when i started my facebook group to now wanting to have some of more of these i want to say edgier it's i guess it would be kind of slightly edgier conversations about what this means and and what direction it takes and and i also want to have those conversations in terms of um you know we can't just talk about the oppression of women and reclaiming the sacred feminine uh, without talking about all the other ways that patriarchal systems have impacted us. So it's it's um, not productive to have just that conversation if we're not also talking about um, racism or ableism or all of the ways in which this is played out. Um, I feel like I'm am just kind of answering your question. I sort of going off on a you definitely
1: tomorrow. you definitely are yeah no and i I think what I'm the thread I'm hearing that I'll pull out is intersectionality yeah which is you know if if patriarchy is about saying that a very narrow type of i of of you know in, in identity is is normative, then the opposite is to say that we're all entangled and relational and we're going to do our best work when we join hands across differences
0: yeah and even when that's hard um I, I have noticed that there's a real push for unity in the sacred feminine community, like we're all having the same experience, kind of feel, and we're not. It, it and we are not. And even if you, I had a pod, uh, not a podcast. I had a Facebook group member point this out to me a while back, which was so helpful. Um, she's Indian American and is a Hindu, and she's like, "Look, you know, this whole strive to reclaim the sacred feminine in the United States and in Europe is very much tied up." With women's rights like it's it's it is there's this whole women's empowerment thing that's happening it's a different conversation somewhere like that where they have been worshiping goddesses for many thousands of years right that and and men worship goddesses there as well and so the empowerment piece starts to come in when you're looking at what colonialism did you know as opposed to they didn't lose the divine feminine um but what impact has colonization had on norms there and that is a much more nuanced conversation than saying um patriarchy killed the goddess right like it's it's much more nuanced yeah and you know it did patriarchy kill the goddess or is the
1: death of the goddess and patriarchy are they both symptomatic of something even earlier yeah. I mean, and i think that's really that's interesting something i'm interested in is like when do we see these hierarchies develop when do we see th- this type of domineering behavior as, you know, decoupled from a certain kind of gender essentialism. You know, I'm, I'm really interested in how agriculture and surplus food and kind of sessile living when you stop actually roaming across the land following the phenological tides of different species fruiting and dying back, you know, when, when we start to stay still, our ways of, of making culture start to stay still and they get stuck in a very particular way of um, ordering um, identity. Yeah, I'm also interested in how alphabetic cultures um creates a complete conceptual paradigm shift whereby suddenly, instead of thinking that language is relational, it's infused with a breath that ties one interior to another interior, it's always adapting, suddenly, we're always seeing the mirror of ourselves in these texts that have that allow for a totally abstract world to to develop and in alongside that abstract world are certain kinds of abstract classifications that buttress up patriarchy and mm-hmm.
0: colonialism. Mm-hmm, I have so many thoughts as you were saying that. Do you have thoughts on like kind of, um, I don't know, I guess I'm kind of thinking it, well, Rian Eisler's language is more around domination, cultures of domination, yeah. right? That doesn't necessarily tie to patriarchy, but you reference like what might even be before that kind of gender language. Do you have thoughts on that or? Um, I, I think it's tied to, I mean, here's the thing,
1: there's a game whereby we're always looking for an origin. And that right. impulse is informed by a kind of linear temporality that is also paired to, um, you know, cultures of domination, right? So in fact, maybe we should problematize this desire to always locate one cause, you know, one, yes. origin, and say, it's multi-causal, you know, There are a lot of different things that happen, it is interesting to play with different ideas and see how they how they can expand and widen our understanding, you know, it does seem interesting that when you see fermentation vats And mass agriculture, you see the first instance instance of mass executions. So whenever you have like mass fermentation, you have mass execution sites. You know, this is really well documented in David Wengrow and David Graper's The Dawn of Everything. Yeah, um, I was just going to
0: ask you if you'd read that. I've been working my yeah. way through it. I, it's going to take me a while to finish it because it's massive. Yeah.
1: I have very complicated feelings about that text, but it has really invaluable information in it. So is fermentation the beginning, you know, sometimes I always like to complicate that everything is a human story. Sometimes I say civilization could be a very particular fermented fungal story that's using humans as a mouthpiece that you see civilization oftentimes arise alongside fermentation. Mm -hmm. So we're always I'm always just trying to massage these um, these dogmas that we hold as truth Mm -hmm. and not trying to settle on one as opposed to the other.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is there one that you, you find to be most intriguing? Mm, what do you mean? Well, that represents a real shift from a kind of participatory, nature reverent culture into these these more static cultures of domination. Is there something you see as being kind of a hinge?
0: Well, you know, what's been interesting to me is uh, it kind of arriving the same place you are that, that it is a slippery slope to try and come up with one story. Like I, I, I'm more interested. And so for that reason, I was really, I've been enjoying the dawn of everything for their examples of, you know, Hey, here is a culture who um, started agriculturally and then went backwards and decided they didn't want to do it because it yeah. didn't make sense to them. So they became, they went back to gatherer hunters or they, they've got lots of examples that sort of challenge that that one overarching narrative um and i've even seen this in the sacred feminine literature there is whether it's implied or outright spoken i feel like there is an assumption like i said that patriarchy killed the goddess and that that happened around the world it was aligned with agriculture the rise of agriculture and this is a set story and it's done and it isn't done i mean you can look at the story of um guadalupe for example this happened 500 years ago we're not talking about now certainly i'm no expert on mexican culture and what was happening then and i you know i would i would decouple that from a conversation about women's rights but the reality is the goddess was not dead uh you know what happened is again colonialism that is is what really changed things there and so i'm i'm interested in that kind of um you know pulling apart those narratives that just become too um, one-dimensional, too simplistic.
1: Yeah. And I also think it's very, very hard to kill deities or, or cosmologies, and it's much easier to reinterpret them and to syncretically mm. syncretically include them in a new cosmology. And so what I say is monster myths are mother myths. You can't kill the mother, but you can turn her into a monster like Tiamat who is, That's... you know, the Sumerian mother goddess suddenly becomes this monstrous dragon that Marduk has to kill. Right. You know, we also see this with Medusa, who is probably representative of these older epiphonic snake goddesses of like Cretan yeah. culture, who's, you know, when the Greek hordes come down and need to subjugate these other people, they can't get rid of the goddess. She's too deeply rooted, but they can reinterpret her. So mm-hmm. what I think that does is it says, it gives us a more complex way of having a context myth analysis where we say, Who are the monsters of today's myths and what could they be hiding? What's in the root system? Could it be something
0: funkier, sexier, more nature reverent? Mm -hmm. Well, and this kind of leads me to your book too, because I, (laughs) I guess what I think of when you say that is also... That we have the opportunity to do the same thing, right? Which I feel like is, you know, I want to hear you talk about your your book, um, The Flowering Wand, but it felt very much like that's what you were doing, you know, like, so there's this one idea, right, which we can just hearken back to the past and try to figure out what was going on there. And that's interesting, for sure. And we can start to tell new stories based on what we've got here too. And I find that infinitely interesting. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your, your inspiration with this collection of essays that you put together about the masculine. Thank you for that wonderful question.
1: Oftentimes the very quick paraphrase is I say, reroute, rewild, retell, which is in oral traditions, which were 90% of human history every time you told a story it changed to suit your audience, the weather, the political social pressures of a particular moment. So storytelling should 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 be constantly be changing and moving. So to pretend like old myths from different ecosystems can be transplanted into a totally different environment and time period doesn't exactly make sense. They need to be updated and adapted. But first what we need to do is we need to reroute them in their original ecosystem to figure out what they were really saying. So Jesus is always my test, my, my example, which is Jesus has become this white figure of, of, of colonial um, genocide. But what he really was, was a brown oral storyteller who was doing hands-on healing and saying, invite everybody to the table and oppose empire. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so how do, how does re-rooting Jesus in a particular time period in a lang- particular language and assemblage of practices open up his teachings into something much more relevant today. And then how can we use those to create our own environmental parables where we live now? You know, mustard seeds aren't going to teach us something in the Hudson Valley, but I can look at the invasive species and the things that farmers consider weeds here and say, what stories do you have to tell me today? And so what I'm always saying is like, we can we can reroot these myths that have been deracinated de- from their original cultures by colonialism, and we can look at what they were really trying to say, and then we can use them to direct us in, back into a dynamic relationship with the landscapes where we find ourselves planted, and asking those landscapes how to dialogue about what storytelling could mean. You know, I was I was talking to magician philosopher David Abram the other day. He said, we can't restore the land without restoring the land, which mm-hmm. I loved so much, which is, you know, the land is filled with stories and it, we, we won't be able to understand what the land needs very practically, scientifically, in terms of conservation until we learn how to talk with it again, how to ask it for its stories. So I think someone like Jesus, when we replant him in his actual tradition, in a kind of biblical animism and a Judaism that was very deeply tied to the land as mnemonic device, we can see that Jesus, Jesus as Yeshua is teaching us how to ask the land questions, ask the land for good of metaphors. We can't take his metaphors. They're at too far to removed, but we can look for our own
0: hmm. And I'm curious if you would recommend or obviously, um, so you've got your your book that's coming out in 2023. And I want to talk about that, too. But I'm wondering this sort of uh, this, this version of Jesus that you're talking about, how did you get a handle on him? Like, and do you have any recommendations for listeners that want outside of your book, of course, which will be out next year, but you know, who want to, to get more of a handle on this um radical storytelling Jesus that you're talking about? Cause he sounds, well, yeah, he's way different than what I grew up with.
1: Well, I would say I did a class myth and mycelium with the environmental platform and via that. I know you have also collaborated yeah. with a wonderful assortment of women who are doing really incredible ecological um, pedagogy.
0: Yes. And, and they and were so, on this show too, actually. I know I love that interview. I, I listened yeah. to that interview and I loved
1: yeah. it. Riffie and Christabel, amazing sisters. Um, But I that course was really about assembling all of the different scholars, the biodiversity of scholars that have shown me and Jewish scholars scholars because the truth is people forget that Jesus was a Jew attempting to reform Judaism and that the inclusion of Gentiles happens well after he, he died um, and that it's important to, to remember that. And in fact, in the context of Judaism, it's an it's not a very effective Judaism. It doesn't stick mm. um, And that he's a teacher that actually doesn't have a very long lifespan. I sometimes think we have like the first chapter of a teacher's book. You know, we we shouldn't pretend like all spiritual wisdom is in the first year of teaching. (laughs) What would have happened if Jesus, Jesus had been allowed to develop his thinking over 10 or 20 years, you know? We yeah. oftentimes think we fetishize the the crucifixion as the first chapter in a miracle, but really it, it's a tragedy. It's the interruption of the beginning of the development of a certain kind of nature-based storytelling and teaching that was intimately informed by oral Judaism. Um, yeah. Uh, I would recommend Rabbi Jesus by Bruce Chilton, who I studied with with at Bard College. I would recommend um, the Gospel Q and the Gnostic Bible and looking at all of the different apocryphal texts, which actually represented typical Christianity before the Council of Nicaea and the Roman Empire tried to narrow down what was orthodox and what was heterodox. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Gnostic Gospels by Elaine Pagels. Elaine Pagels work with Gnosticism, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, I would say Elaine Pagel's work is incredible. Neil Douglas Plotts' work with the Aramaic. And then, of course, one of the best books, which is a really heavy tome, is The Historical Jesus by John Dominic Crossan, although his lectures are also incredibly informative. And he's really done the on-the-ground historical research with the primary documents, the anthropology, the mythical traditions of the Mediterranean. He's really incredible. But yeah, there are lots of different people. I would say the bibliographies of, of my book, The um, the Flowering Wand, is a really great place to start.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. And for anybody who's listening is like, I didn't get all that. I'll put it in the show notes. Don't worry. So you will have it. Um, oh Man, I had a thought for you and it just kind of flew out of my head. No, I, I've got it because I, I, we're on Jesus. So let's stick with Jesus. And then I do want to go back to The Flowering Wand. I have some other questions around that, but- um since we're talking about Jesus, Uh I want to hear some of your thoughts about, um, so it certainly seems like both Mary Virgin Mary and Mary Magdalene are much more, I don't know if I can say more, but they seem to me to be much more in our consciousness than perhaps in previous times. And, um, I'm curious what your thought is. So there, it feels like again, if we talk about the sacred feminine, there's been like this whole reclamation of Mary and Mary Magdalene, and some of it, um, well, it just it it runs the gamut, right? Like it's not all history based. There's a lot of like uh, intuitive, sort of channeled type stuff. I, I wonder what your what your reflections are on these women, um, your perspective and historical as well that you've looked at.
1: Well, I would say that actually. If you look at the church Marian tradition and the folkloric um, tradition of Mary Magdalene, there was a deep reverence and folkloric tradition of that upheld these women up through the, um, the the Inquisition, and in fact, the Inquisition was in a certain ways very directed at these heterodox movements that upheld Mary and the Magdalene, mm-hmm. and that the Magdalene had a very strong presence in France and Europe that was really, really hard to squelch because it lived in the body, it lived in the stories. So you could, you know, burn the text and try to erase these things. But it was hard, unless you killed everybody, which is what happened with the Catherine um, massacre, it was really hard to get rid of this reverence for this for this feminine counterpart to the male Jesus. And so I would say that it actually hasn't been gone for that long, but it is coming. You know, there are certain ways that feminism certain kinds of, you know, the resurrection of the Gnostic Gospels, which definitely showed that, you know, Mary was apostle of the apostles. She just she wasn't just like a woman at the tomb. She was, you know, a teacher. She was, you know, Jesus calls her in the Gospel of Thomas his Koinonos, which means his partner, his his peer, his counterpart. Mm. Um, and so that, you know, in Europe there is a long-standing tradition of Marian and Magdalene worship. That we are coming back to from different perspectives now, I am very worried about what I see as an anti-Semitic and pretty racist impulse to make the Magdalene into this red-haired white woman from, you know, from Ireland. And to, you know, and the truth is that she was probably a Jewish woman who had some kind of money to fund the ministry as Luke tells us, and who was probably pretty radical because she was opposing certain kinds of orthodox beliefs that she had probably been raised within. And she was a spiritual quester and able to dialogue with this wild rascal storyteller. Um, So I think it's much more interesting to replant. So here's something, you know, I think that channeling, every time you write fiction, you're channeling. I think we're Mm -hmm. always opening ourselves up to other influences, but I think channeling can also be a way of masking our biases, our racism, our positionality, our situation. And so I worry a lot about channeled experiences of the Magdalene that erase her Judaism, that erase her Middle Eastern um, heritage that erase the complexity and nuance of being a Jewish woman during the second temple period, Palestine, where the Romans are oppressing her people. And we mm-hmm. have, we don't have a lot of documents about Jesus from right when he happened, you know, we have after effect information, yeah. but we do have a lot of primary documents about the texture and practices of Jewish life during that time period. And it seems a shame for me to ignore those when we're trying to resurrect these, these people. You know we have information about the perfumes and the food that they ate, you know the prayers that the pray, that they prayed, the stories they told the environments the plants the animals that they interacted with and to really honor these people is to honor all of that complexity that they were planted within
0: mm-hmm. yeah, it makes me think too um with with channeled information we don't um we don't get to erase ourselves as part of that, yeah. right? Like we 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 are we are um, we are an interpreter of information, and that interpretation yeah. is always going to be in our own language and our own experiences. It's kind of like asking journalists to be a hundred percent objective. That's impossible. Yeah. we don't erase ourselves like what like that. So, um, yeah. So I don't discount channeled work, but I also always, I I hold it with a certain
1: amount of cynicism. And that's why I think fiction is a really interesting place to do channeling work, which is you acknowledge you're a writer and you're using primary documents and you're doing intense research and you're not pretending like you have the full story. You have to go looking for the full story, but also you do bring in a certain kind of divine inspiration, but you're not handing this to someone else as truth you're handing this to someone else as your creative particular view into something that they might have a different view into.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And for the, in, in case it sounded like that, I'm not uh, dismissing channeled work either. Um, uh, I, so no, yeah, of, no, it's just- yeah. I, well, that's mostly for the listeners. I just want you, you know, I've read a whole bunch of stuff and I find it all fascinating. And I, I think that the key is just to hold it, you know, like, hmm, no. what, what do I have to glean from this? And what, what biases might be at play or how does this not relate to my experience um oh gosh i have so many oh sorry go ahead no i think it's about
1: self-discernment and you know mm-hmm. gnosticism which which was which was opposed to the orthodox christianity christianity that develops 200 years after jesus so gnosticism is probably a little bit closer to to jesus and Gnosticism not as being a homogenizing universalism, but being a diversity of practices that all get kind of lumped under that term. What it prized was Gnosis, which is self-discovery of the divine. So each person had their own particular way of accessing the divine. And they could all help each other in a community talk about what that was like. But at the end of the day, your experience of the divine would be very personalized. And I think that is also channeling in creative work. You know, it's your personal gnosis but it does it's not necessarily someone else's gnosis
0: yes and i think this is again where we run into problems right with our the way that our culture is sort of organized and we understand things is that um i'm just thinking of the need to put out this mess like ah this is true for all of you because it is true for me is going to be true for you and this is the way it is and um that isn't always very helpful no <laughs> yeah oh. um i want to ask you i'm Sorry to my listeners. I'm like, okay, now I've got you here. I have so many questions, and I'm I want to go back. Um, like, it, just hang on, listeners, for conversations about Jesus. So I have one more question for you, and I'm thinking of and and curious about your perspective on. So there's the the historical man, right? Jesus. You believe Jesus is a historical figure, right? Like there is evidence believe- that he existed, or no?
1: There's 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 enough firsthand. I I would say that you know there have been a lot of. Conferences about the historicity of Jesus. We have enough. We have Josephus, who is contemporary with Jesus, confirming that Yokanan the Immerser, John the Baptist, was real. So, John the Baptist is real, who's associated with Jesus. We also have the Pauline epistles, and we have texts from um, the apostles that happened pretty much immediately afterwards. So, I believe that he was a historical figure. I believe that he probably had very little to do with the Jesus that gets translated into the language of empire and then
0: sterilized down to the synoptic gospels mm-hmm. okay that's great that's helpful Because my question for you is this question of and, and i guess maybe this will wind us back to your your um sacred uh, the flowering wand book is how the myths of the past sort of got transcribed on top of jesus too like for example i'm thinking of um you know, the similarities between uh, the story of addis and uh, and Jesus, right? and Chibele and you know the the mother, right? which uh, you could probably speak to that and explain that to the listeners what that is. But there's some remarkable similarities, right? of this that story which came out of Rome and within a couple of hundred years before Jesus was said to have lived. is that do I have that right? Yeah.
1: So the, the, you know, the thesis of the flowering wand is that myths are like mushrooms, which is they look above ground, like individuals, but they're connected below ground to a mythic mycelium mm. that is much older and larger than, you know, that, you know, Jesus looks like a mushroom above ground, but he's collect- connected below ground to an, a, a many thousand year old Mediterranean mythic mycelium of vegetal gods that die and resurrect like Osiris, mm-hmm. like Dionysus, like Orpheus, like and Adonis, like Dumuzi. Mm-hmm. I would say and so I, I looked at all of these gods are associated with fermentation, with party. They're often the advocate of outcasts and women. They always oppose empire. They're seen as being kind of anathema and a danger to empire. And they they never stay still. They're always, they come, they inspire kind of emergent, ecstatic nature reverent behavior. They oftentimes bring some kind of fermented beverage and then they die and their bodies are physically mulched back into the land from whence they came. So they kind of re-articulate this vegetal cycle of, you know, fruit up, sporulate, reproduce, pollinate, and then die back to nourish the soil. And I would say that you see Dionysus, Orpheus, Osiris on this kind of virtuous cycle of decay and refruit. Mm-hmm. For many thousands of years, although each time they fruit up in a specific place, they're very particularly adapted to the conditions that they're responding to. You know, Dionysus always, he's always given many different names. He always looks different. And he kind of represents an adaptogenic it- intelligence. So adaptogens are mushrooms or, you know, plant components that go into your immune system and they don't have. They don't have a general response. They have a, a their response activates your immune system, and it ha- they have a tailored response to your specific set of needs. So I, I think of these as these of these vegetal gods as being adaptogenic. Every time they fruit up above ground, they have a very tailored response to a specific time period. I see Jesus as being an interruption in that cycle, because instead of having his body mulched back into the ground and and really honoring that death is a physical embodied experience that it's making yourself edible, you know, making yourself into food, his body evaporates. And when his yeah. body evaporates, his sensuality, his nature reverence, his relationship to women, to outcasts, to impurity disappears. And suddenly you interrupt that that virtuous cycle. And if you actually look at biology, When you interrupt cycles of decay, really problematic things happen. So during the Carboniferous period, way, way back in deep time, all of this woody matter suddenly evolved, but there was no specific fungus that had developed, no white rot that could decay that woody matter. So it accumulated really fast. It swamped the earth, it killed many, many other beings. It compacted down, it created an actual um, climate catastrophe and dropped the um, the temperature and created an ice age. And it's that compacted, undigested matter. It's that interruption in the cycle of decay and refruit that today is powering the fossil fuels that are global warming. And so I sometimes think that, you know, when we interrupt these cycles, they have unintended chaotic um, uh, consequences.
0: Mm -hmm. That's such a good answer. Well, I also wanted to mention too that one of the things that I loved about um, this book, The Flowering Wands... Is the whole the the vision of the sacred masculine that it gives us, which is you you well, I'm interested in the whole fermentation thing because we've talked about that twice now. I want to come back to that. but but there's also something like, ok, so I feel like this is old school language. Um, they so many of them seem to be what what I feel like we would have called androgynous, but they are gender fluid, right? Or they much more so than I think what patriarchy gives us in terms of like our standard operating procedures for men today, right? Well, I would say that we call
1: anything that's not patriarchal ca- patriarchal masculinity androgyny. Yes, but the truth is that, bef- you know, 2000 years ago, there was a biodiversity of masculine expressions that were on a rhizomatic continuity with feminine expressions. Mm-hmm. And that if we look at many other indigenous cultures, they have, you know, a a instead of having binaries they have mycelial systems of self-identification and oftentimes you know I'm very interested in the gala who were the priests and priestesses who worshipped Inanna and Inanna was power Inanna was actually considered divine because she could change your gender and she was oftentimes represented with both breasts and a phallus and sometimes with a beard and Inanna as re-articulated and developed into Venus and Aphrodite on Cyprus is often shown as having both gender both genders and being able to kind of flow between both of them and i think that masculinity masculinity used to be much more playful that it lunated through many different forms rather than being stuck in one solar linear um ray of sunshine coming down you know yeah yeah. and you know, patriarchy and masculinity have been conflated, but patriarchy represents one narrow flavor of masculinity. And what I wanted to show is there are many different ways of embodying the masculine. And in fact, you should be allowed to play with them every day. You don't have to decide on one and perform it and stick to it. You can lunate through them.
0: Mm hmm. Okay. You know, it's funny, Sophie, as you were talking, it's like, I want to, I was thinking, gosh, I want to ask her, how did we get here? I'd like, I want the one story of how we got here with this, with this stuck with the patriarchal male, which is so funny. Cause what we've been talking about is that there isn't one story. <laughs> it just goes to show that that kind of thinking is really deep rooted, isn't it? I mean, it is. yeah, we can notice it, we can do it. And then we can notice it. You know, it. it it's all about,
1: the minute we demonize our own patterns, we also kind of get stuck there. So we can say, yeah, there is an impulse. I do have a desire. And this book was written with a desire to look backwards, but I also didn't want to just look backwards. I wanted to retell these stories with, with a certain kind of playfulness, taking quantum physics and modern biology, mycology and fungal science in order to retell these things with some of our new tools, the new ways of seeing how life emerges
0: yes and i'm trying to think about how to put how do i put this into words um well and even in when we are exploring this stuff i find that it's so easy to slip into binaries right of yeah. like even the binary of oh this is the way it was back then and this is the way it is now like there's this clear sort of delineation and and even those are our only options as opposed to um the creativity of 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 Taking, I guess, what you're talking about and sort of imagining what might be possible for the future, that becomes a different option that gets on the table, it seems to me, when you start to play with the with the myths in this way.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very paired with a, a very... Um narrow idea of how time happens Mm -hmm. and i've recently been looking at how in you know ancient egypt there was an idea that there was cyclical time so time was always repeating and then there was the time of 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 you know the pharaohs when the pharaohs die they they pass into the time of the gods which isn't past it's always there but it it doesn't change so there's this changeless time that's happening alongside cyclical time but there's no linear time and Mm -hmm. when you start thinking about that those cycles, you stop getting stuck in this kind of night or day, either or thinking. And so sometimes I think we need to kind of problematize our idea of how, how time happens, and that having a more fluid understanding of temporality can help us understand that the past is is happening today. Mm-hmm. Every time we reinterpret the past, the past is still happening for us, and that the right. future refluxes into us. That, you know, in, in a lot of amazing scientific studies, we show that you know, the human instant may not actually represent now. It may be a version of now that is actually much wider. Mm-hmm. And that in something called lipids delay, people's bodies responded to electrical shocks before they even got them and or knew that they were gonna get them. Wow. And it's it's one of these amazing, like strange anomalies, but they've repeated it. And so I love the idea of limits delayed. It complicates our idea of like where the future is. Sometimes I like to think that the future is refluxing into us mm. and that there's a guardian angel of my own self in the future that's pulling me forward.
0: Mm. Oh, I love that idea for sure. And I, I that resonates with me a lot. Um, I want to ask you, this is a little bit of a personal question, but I loved how in your, um, your acknowledgements, your final acknowledgement was to Dionysus, and you said that life had gotten a lot weirder since he showed up for you. And I'm wondering if you might be able to share about that weirdness. What does that look like to invite this kind of God into your life?
1: It's interesting. I did a lot of research on Dionysus to write my book, my novel about Jesus, because I knew that Dion- that Dionysian traditions get melded syncretically. With early Christianity, and that there that they happened alongside each other geographically, and I thought it would be important. But the truth was, I spent a lot of time writing and researching Jesus, and Jesus is a tragedy. He's an interruption. He doesn't get to fully form his his um, his religion. His religion is deeply impinged by imperialism and violence. He's reactionary. You know, we have to think of Jesus as a human who has was probably having traumatic responses. And you know his teacher and the Immerser, uh, John the Baptist, is killed. You know when he was four, probably he had seen the mass um, execution of all of the Jews involved in Judas, um, Judas the um, Zealot's revolt. Hmm. So he's he's a complicated, traumatized person who is trying hard to create a spirituality that might be more n- nutritious to peasants alongside him, but it's a, It's a tragedy. It's hard. It's painful. It's not necessarily spiritually um, an embrace. it's It's tricky. You have to stay with the trouble to kind of summon Donna Harway, who's one of my favorite thinkers. Dionysus, on the other hand, had had a very, very long, stable tradition that, you know, it becomes the Romans are are worried about how anti-imperial he is and how he disrupts established order. He actually inspired the two almost successful revolts against the Roman Empire. um, Fukuya Anya, who was a witch in Campania, and Spartacus. Spartacus was a Dionysian follower inspired by his wife, who was uh, supposed to be a priestess of Dionysus. And I was interested as Dionysus as being a more fertile, healthy version of what Jesus is re-articulating. And so when I started, finally, after I'd finished my novel, I was in quarantine. I was depressed. I was lonely. I had to quarantine alone because of health reasons. And I was I was researching Dionysus again, just to keep myself kind of intellectually flexible. And I thought, you know, this feels healthier to me. It's more vegetal. It's more embodied. It's playful. It has a sense of humor mm-hmm. and there's no tragedy inherent that interrupts it. It keeps cycling.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes. I, I, that I, I greatly enjoyed all of that in your book too. sort of reconnecting, um, with that, I didn't know much about Dionysus, uh, before reading that. So I really appreciated that. Um, I'm curious, um, for you, what does, what does spiritual practice look like for you in your life? What do you, how do you, how are you accessing? I think,
1: I think if you're spiritual, okay. I, I, my spiritual practice is evidence-based. If what I'm doing is bringing me into contact with more beings outside my door, with my community, with, then it's real. If my mm-hmm. spiritual practice is helping me be a better citizen of a complex entanglement of microbes, fungi, insects, indigenous populations, communities, neighbors, then it's real. You know, if my religious practice is all up in my head, if it's some kind of rearranging of abstract concepts, if it's not lived in my body and in my web of relationships, it's not real. So I'm always interrogating my spiritual practices to make sure they have a root system. Mm-hmm. Do they root me in a particular place? Do they root me into my community? Be, you know, my community that extends beyond the human. And this, I think this has to, this isn't a, a destination you reach. This is a constant self-inquiry you know is my spiritual practice actually helping me be a better member of my web of relations
0: yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i love that perspective that's beautiful and then i wanted to ask you to, and i uh like i already don't like the question so let's just let's just take it you just run with okay. it how you want you will um but i want to ask you uh, there's it's a question around hope or around like where you, where we see us going uh, in the future, right? We just talked about how future and past are all kind of tangled up and whatnot, but um, there's, and I talk about this on the show a lot about, you know, just the the bleakness that we are facing all around us. And you can take that from any angle that you want. I mean, the, um, the environmental one is, is, is obvious, but there's, there's all kinds of ways you could take that. Right. And so I wonder for you, is hope even a concept that you work with and what no, what do you see yeah. for a future? As yeah.
1: someone as someone who has seen, you know I'm a survivor of violent um, childhood sexual abuse, and I've seen the depths of hell and I've seen it rearticulated again and again. I've seen yeah. things happen that leak past our simplistic ideas of right and wrong, and they happen in a way that uh, ruptures meaning. And I see the way we're treating the earth. And I think this is bigger than my narrow perspective. And I like to plant ourselves, myself, ourselves in deep time, which is, you know, it's not that we're on some trajectory towards optimization. Every species eventually goes extinct, that we are, in fact, the product of extinction, that, you know, 75 to 90% of the of all species were wiped out when the dinosaurs were um, destroyed by the, media, the meteor strike, I forget what it was called, the Chicxulub, I think the Chicxulub um, meteorite that hit us, and it was in that space opened up, that empty space left behind by, extin- by a mass extinction, that mammals finally diversified and filled these empty niches and created created us. So we are the product of a a sacrificial extinction event. So we have to understand ourselves as being part of a narrative that is much bigger than the human. And when you start to feel that, Mm -hmm. then human survival doesn't feel like a priority. Like it's, you know, it's important in in as much as I am a human in relationship with other humans, but the most important thing is the enlivenment of the world in general, the dynamic homeostasis of Gaia as, as a wild biospheric entity you know and if and, and you know there's going to be a respiration of extinction diversification dis- extinction diversification on deep time scales that are so much bigger than a human lifetime and so when i think we when we can begin to engage with these much longer time scales we can understand that we are part of a story that where we are not the main character that being said when you get awake to the harm that we're doing, you know, when you think of yourself as a spider within a web of relations, you know, we're we're showing more and more that spiders think with their whole web such that when you damage part of the web, they act as if they had a stroke. When you Mm. think of yourself as a spider within a web of relations that include the soil, the moss, the deer, the people all around you, when you think of those beings being hurt by extractive ecocidal um, behavior, you want to stop it your body is being harmed as well. Your extended body is being harmed. So, and I'm in no way saying that we should not act to stop this behavior, but I also think we should problematize this idea that we will optimize ourselves and prolong human survival.
0: Mm. Yeah, I hear that. And then, and the, the mother in me wants to say like, but I want this world to be here for my kids, yeah. you know, like the, the, the human entanglement there is very real, <laughs> right? And that's,
1: that's why, that's why every day we wake up and we protect our kin, our kin yeah. that are our kin biologically and our chosen kin, you know, the kin that build us very metabolically with every microbiome-laced breath, you know, we're fighting for our children and for the beings that constitute us.
0: Mm-hmm. Totally
1: is a great question.
0: Thank you. Mm. I I feel like I have so many more. Okay. I think this is a good place to stop. Like we could, yeah, I think this is a good place to stop. Um,
1: I I actually, I love, I love the idea of, of, of complicating the idea of a completion. Let's leave ourselves unsatisfied. So this conversation will begin at another point that it will sprout other, other conversations. Like, I feel like we could talk much more and let's do that.
0: Yes. May it be. So, well, I'd love Thank to have you come know. back, uh, next year when your, uh, your next book is out as well. That would, would be fantastic. That. So consider the invitation extended. Um, Sophie, tell us how people can find you and your work. Thank you so much, Liz. And I'd love to send
1: you an early copy of the Madonna secret. Um, yeah, <gasps> be amazing. So when when that's ready, I will definitely make sure that makes its way to you. Um, people can I'm on social media at Cosmogyny on Instagram, I'm on Twitter, on Facebook. I have a sub stack where I post a lot of free essays and then private content if you wish to support me. Um, but you know, I, I, I always want to give away, enough free information that I honor how much I've benefited from the generosity of other artists and thinkers. <laughs> um, so you can find me on Instagram, on Facebook, on Substack. I'm right now I'm doing a rewilding mythology course with Advia. You can sign up at any point during the course and access past sessions and resources. Um, that's at rewildingmythology.com. And I have two books that are coming out, The Flowering Wand um, and many book events that are going to be happening in conjunction with those. So follow me on social media for more updates about those. I love yes. to be in conversation. So come bother me.
0: Yes. And I will make sure I get all this in the show notes. I, my Our show notes are going to be really long, y'all. I took a lot of notes here. Um, all good. Thank you so much, Sophie. What a rich and wonderful conversation. I'm so glad what we is- finally made this happen
1: that was one of the best conversations I've had. What thoughtful, thoughtful questions. Thank you. Mm. I'm like really, really touched by what care you took. Thank you. Oh,
0: thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you guys, the listeners, as always, I'm so grateful that you're here. This wouldn't be any fun if nobody was listening on the other end. So thanks for listening. And I, I meant to say this in the beginning in case y'all turn this off at the end, but, um, Hey, get in touch with me. I love to hear what your thoughts, thoughts are about the essays. Um, I love it all so send me a note social media you can email me liz at home dot com and if you like the show you can um give it a favorable review you can tell your friends about it you can subscribe you can do all those things and until next time take good care i will talk to you again very soon home to her is hosted by me liz kelly you can visit me online at hometoher.com, where you can find show notes and other episodes. You can read articles about the Sacred Feminine, and you'll also find a link to join the Home to Her Facebook group for lots more discussion and exploration of her. You can also follow me on Instagram at Home to Her to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you back here soon.